Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And Paul is continuing his defense of the gospel. That is why he wrote this letter, was to defend the simplicity of the gospel message because these false teachers had come into the churches there and they had tried to twist and add to the gospel. They, they had tried to add our works to God's grace as a requirement for salvation. And so Paul is writing this letter to these churches that he had planted with a pastor's heart, with concern for this deception, for these people that were being deceived. And as we make our way through the entirety of chapter 2 of Galatians this morning, we're going to see Paul make three points about the gospel. We're going to see Paul make the point that the gospel is approved by the apostles, it was attacked by the enemy, and then it was applied by Paul personally. And so those are the three things that we're going to see as we make our way through Galatians chapter 2. The first thing is that it was approved by the apostles. You remember last week, in chapter 1, Paul made it very clear that the gospel message was given to him by revelation of Jesus Christ. As he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, ironically, Jesus came to him and told him that by persecuting the church, he was actually persecuting God himself. He was persecuting Jesus, who was and is God. And so Paul completely made a 180 degree turn that day and began to be a follower of Jesus rather than a persecutor of those that follow Jesus. And he said in that first chapter that he had received that message directly from the Lord. And so the question had come up, well, if Paul received it directly from the Lord, where is the accountability? How do we know it's true? How do we know this is from God? It's just Paul's word. Yeah, he could say that he heard it from God himself, but how do we know that? And so Paul is now going to make the point that it was approved by the apostles. This wasn't just Paul making, you know, statements on his own. This wasn't Paul as a lone ranger. This was approved by the apostles, and that's made very clear in verses 1 through 10. So let's read those verses together, and then we'll make some application. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. Now, a little background on this particular story. It's found in Acts chapter 15. It's commonly called the Jerusalem Council, where Paul and Barnabas and Titus were sent by the church of Antioch to Jerusalem to deal with these Judaizers who had come into the church and said that you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to keep the law of Moses. You need to eat according to the dietary traditions. You need to do all of these things in addition to believing in Jesus. And there was this huge dispute and debate in the church. And so wisely, the leaders sent Paul and Barnabas, along with Titus, to Jerusalem to hash this out. And that's exactly what they did. They went there and and they were able to come to a consensus about what the gospel was. What did Jesus teach? And the consensus was, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to adhere to all the Jewish traditions. And that's what Paul went back to the church of Antioch, which really was the sending place of all these Gentile churches who were being sort of roped in to the legalism of the Jewish people as well. He went back and he said, look, we're not under that bondage. This is the statement of the church leaders, of Peter and James and John. 
And so that's kind of the background as he says after 14 years. Because in verse 18 of chapter 1, he talks about his first trip to Jerusalem. Now he's saying 14 years later, I went again. And that account is given to us in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council. And so he went up by revelation, verse 2 tells us. It was a direct command of God that he was to go and speak to the leaders of the church about these things. And I communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And so Paul's just saying, I went and I talked to the leaders privately about this. We wanted to to come to a consensus because I didn't want my ministry to be in vain. If I was wrong, Paul's saying, I wanted to admit it. I was willing to admit it. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And so Paul uses Titus as a proof that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul had brought along Titus because he was a Greek. And so... If anyone was going to need to be circumcised, if anyone was going to need to, to be put under the rules and regulations of the Jews, it would be Titus. He wasn't raised that way. He didn't follow those things. You remember that Paul, although his ministry was to the Gentiles, Paul was a devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so these things weren't really a big deal to Paul. He was already circumcised. But for Titus, it was a big deal. It's a big deal when you're 25, 30 years old and people start telling you you need to be circumcised and that you need to change your lifestyle that you've had for your whole life. And so Paul's using Titus as a proof text. Look, they didn't even put these requirements on Titus when we were there. They told him, don't worry about it. And this occurred because of false brethren, verse 4, secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Paul wasn't a respecter of persons. These false teachers were throwing their names and their titles and who they knew around, and Paul wasn't impressed by that at all. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, or to the Jew, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars or leaders in the church, perceived that the grace had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, they gave Paul carte blanche to go and to preach the gospel apart from the law, apart from being circumcised, apart from all the dietary rules and regulations. They said, go for it. You don't need to add all this other stuff. Just teach Jesus. But now, years later, after this has already been hashed out at the Jerusalem Council, here are these Judaizers bringing this up again, coming into the Gentile churches and saying, you need to do this and this and this. And how sad it is when we see that happening even today, when we see well-meaning people, I'm sure, but deceived nonetheless, knocking on doors, sending out 
flyers, having television programs and radio programs that basically tell us that you need to do A, B, and C before God will accept you. You need to eat a certain way. You need to worship on a certain day. It's amazing to me that we're still going through these things. It's like, how long can Satan ride the same trick pony? I mean, it's just like he's got, you know, one deceptive lie. And, and he's, he's made a career out of it. And, and people just continually buy into this. And I think it's because it appeals to our flesh. Legalism appeals to our flesh. It, it, it seems ironic, but it does. Legalism appeals to us on a human level. It says that there's something good in me. There's something that I can do. There's something that I can add to this. And we like that. We, we like to be a part of things. We like to be needed. We, we want to feel as if we earned it. Most people don't like charity. Most people don't like handouts. Now, some people do. We were in Victoria this week, my wife and I, on vacation, and Victoria, B.C., I've never seen so many beggars. And, I mean, I felt bad for the people, but most of them seemed quite healthy and, and able to work. i just never seen so many people. I mean, you couldn't go more than about a block without being elicited for some kind of handout. And they, they're very creative um, in what they do. And then there's, not to mention all the beggars, there's multitudes of people doing like different things to try to make money. Like there was a mime, you know, and he was actually really good. He would make like robot sounds and move around. And, and, and then there was, you know, I mean, every kind of music you would want, there it was out there on the street if you wanted folk music, you know, there's a folk guy over here on this corner. If you wanted jazz, there's a guy playing the saxophone over here. I mean, it was just, it was pretty cool. And, you know, the little hats out there. And um, But anyway, you know, we don't typically like charity or handouts. And when you hear the gospel, it doesn't resonate with our flesh. That Jesus came and He died in our place. He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And if we will just believe that, trust in it by faith, we will have eternal life. We will be saved from the penalty of our sin. It sounds too easy. And how, how many of you have heard people say that? Well, that, that's too easy. That's too simplistic. And what do we want to do? We want to add to it. We want to put a little bit of our own flavor in it. You know, and it doesn't work that way. It's not like your wife's chili, you know, when you come home from work and she says, hey, how does this taste? Ah, I think it needs a little chili powder or a little pepper, you know, some salt. It's not like that. This isn't soup. This is the gospel. And we can't add to it or change it or do what we want with it. Maybe you think you like it a little more salty or a little less salty or a little more spicy, but it doesn't work that way. And so Paul is making it very clear to these critics of his that the gospel was approved by the apostles. This wasn't just him. This was stamped, signed, sealed, and delivered by the leaders of the church. And so they were the ones that were off here. And so it was approved by the apostles. Now, in a bit of application from this section here, verses 1 through 10, Paul mentions these different leaders of the church. He talks about James and Peter and John. He talks about himself, how that he was a minister to the Gentiles. And that Peter was a minister to the Jews. Which is interesting, because there's a, a large group of people that want to claim Peter as their original leader, as the original Pope, which is kind of interesting in the fact, in the light of the fact that it's very clear here that P 
Peter was the apostle to the Jews, not the Gentiles. Paul, if anything, would have been the first pope, not Peter. But that's a complete aside. The thing that I noticed here is Paul talks about these different leaders and Paul talks about these different giftings within the body. He says, I was called to the Gentiles. Peter was called to the Jews. Then you had James and you had John. The thing that I see there is that God has different callings for each of us. God raises up different leaders, different churches to reach and minister to different people. And sometimes people will say, well, man, the, the church can't even get along. There's different churches on every corner. And, you know, there's this flavor and this flavor over here. And, you know, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. It can be a bad thing if we're at each other's throats. But it's not necessarily a bad thing because God has made us different. He's given us different personalities. And some people are very charismatic. And some people are very conservative. And some people want to go to a church maybe that, that is somewhat mystical and, and the pastor is, is a very deep thinker and other people want to go and they just want to hear, you know, the Word of God taught in a very simple, straightforward format. And some people want to go to a church that's very humanitarian and is doing lots of things in the community. And other people want to go to churches that, you know, are, are very missions oriented and are going out into the, into the world. And there's different flavors. There's different styles of worship. None of them are wrong. None of them are better. It's, it's just different styles. It's different personalities. God raises up different people, just like He raised up Peter. Peter had his own personality. And you read about him in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter was a very unique guy. And, and then you have John. John was very passionate. John was very sensitive. John was a guy that had a, a very close relationship with Jesus. And then you got James, the brother of Jesus, who became a leader in the church. He was very practical. You read his book and he says, look, you want to show me your faith? Without your works, I will show you my faith by my works. I'm going to show you practically. We're going to feed the poor. We're going to minister to the orphans. We're going to help the widows. That was James' heart. That's how he wanted to use his gifts. And see, there's, there's different styles. And it's not necessarily better. It's just how God does things. And the thing is, is that when you come to that realization, especially as a pastor, you, you come to the place where you realize that you can't minister to everybody. And, and people come and go. And, you know, it's easy to take that personally. But you can't do that. And even in your own ministry, in your own life, you won't be able to reach out and minister to everybody. You're going to rub some people the wrong way. And some people are going to rub you the wrong way. You're going to not be able to reach everybody. And we have to come to that place in our life where we realize that. And where we see, you know what, I don't need to take that personally. They don't like me. That's okay. We just need to be who we are and allow God to use us. And, you know, I'm still coming to that place where I realize that and where I try not to take it personally. But, you know, I don't resonate with everybody. Some people don't like the fact that I'm super honest and you're probably going to hear things from me that you wouldn't necessarily hear in other churches. And you're going to hear me say things from 
the pulpit that maybe some guys wouldn't feel comfortable talking about. And that's because I don't see anything sacred about this spot. This is nothing different than if I was talking to you in conversation. And so I'm just who I am. And I just try to talk to people the way I would if we were standing out on the corner. Now, that's not for everybody, and, and, and I wouldn't expect every pastor to do that. And sometimes it gets me in trouble, especially when I talk about, you know, doing donuts in a rental car on the beach. You know, some people give me weird looks when I talk about that kind of stuff. But I can't help it. I'm just comfortable. I'm who I am. And I say stupid things sometimes. And then I have to, you know, admit it was stupid and and then hopefully not make that same mistake again. But I stick my foot in my mouth on a regular basis. Um. And, and, you know, that's, that, that isn't for everybody. And that's okay. And, and, and you will realize in your ministry, in your gifting, in your calling, that you will not be able to minister to everybody. Now, hopefully, that doesn't include your spouse or your kids. Hopefully, you know, you're resonating with them a little bit. But, you know, maybe your neighbor isn't going to think you're the best thing since sliced bread or the, the guy you work with or the... The lady, you know, in in the uh, mom's group that you're a part of or, or that you meet at the store. I mean, not everybody is going to like you. And that's okay. And, and there's, a, there's a great freedom when we get to that place in life. And, and hopefully someday I'll get there. I'm, I'm trying. And the thing is that there's this tenuous balance. Because we have a tendency to say, okay... Well, in that case, then I don't care what anybody thinks, and I'm just going to go and offend everybody and be like a bull in a china shop. And that isn't cool either. We, we, we don't want to get jaded. We don't want to think, you know, well, you know, forget everybody. I don't care what anybody thinks. And that's kind of the other tendency, is just to go around just cutting people in half, you know, and, and being, you know, just this absolute jerk. And, and that, that doesn't work either. So be who you are, and when people don't like you, just know that it's part of life. So it was approved by the apostles. A second point that Paul makes, it's found in verses 11 through 18, that is that it was attacked, that is the gospel, was attacked by the enemy. It says, starting in verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, that is, these Jewish guys came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified or saved. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And so, here Paul talks about the fact that the gospel message was attacked by the enemy. And he does not specifically say that, but that's clearly what was happening here. In this letter, Paul addresses the human instruments used to propagate this false teaching. That's who he's writing to. 
He's writing to and about these false teachers, these men and women who had come into the church and had twisted and perverted the gospel. But even though it was human instruments, it is always the devil that is behind this kind of deception. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we battle not against flesh and blood. It might seem like it's your wife or your husband or your children or your boss or your employees or your neighbor whose dog poops in your yard. It might seem like they're your enemy. But they're not. It's, it's the devil. It's the enemy of our souls that is behind these things. And he uses these little irritations and he uses these false teachings and he uses whatever he can to throw us off. And we have to recognize that. It's very important in a battle to recognize who your enemy is. If you think your enemy is your wife, then you're going to throw grenades and shoot her with guns and you know, tear her in half and cut her up with a sword. That's what you're going to do. If you think your enemy is your husband, then you're going to tear him apart behind his back and, and you're going to shred him up and you're not going to have respect for him because he's your enemy. But he's not. She's not. They aren't. It's the devil. And so, the message of the gospel is being attacked by the enemy. He uses people, but our real battle is against him. And in this case, the devil was using none other than Peter. And it's real sad when the devil uses God's people, and especially God's leaders, to come against his truth, to come against his work. How sad is it when we read about leaders who fall into different kinds of immorality and things that are just unspeakable. And it's just like, what in the world is going on? You know, how in the world could a pastor fall into a meth habit in homosexuality? What in the world is going on? But it's totally the enemy who is behind these things and is using these things to throw off the work of God. And we see the enemy using Peter. He uses Peter to come against his work in the church. Peter began to be two-faced and a hypocrite. When he was around the Gentiles, it was, you know, corned beef and pork and sausage. and I mean, he was just having a good old time. But then when the Jews came in, well, you know, I, I don't do that when they're here because I don't want to offend or I don't want to, you know, hurt anybody or whatever. But he was being a hypocrite. He was saying one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. And Paul called him on it. Paul called him on this hypocrisy. Which is amazing in that Peter was a, was a big gun. Peter was one of the original apostles. He was the, the one that Jesus spent a lot of quality time with. He was one of the three inner circle apostles. And so it took a lot of courage and a lot of boldness for Peter or for Paul to come against Peter. But he does. And first of all, he he recounts what he did. In verses 11 through 13, Paul recounts what he did to come against Peter. He says in verse 11, I withstood him face to face. In other words, this wasn't by letter or by email. He didn't use a smoke signal, you know, from down in Antioch. You know, I think I need to talk to Peter. I'm going to, you know, send him a little signal here and tell him what I think of him. 
you know, or maybe by phone today. You know, if you need to say something to someone that's somewhat confrontive and somewhat uh, in their face, kind of a, a rebuke, you need to do it face to face. Don't do it over the phone. Don't email somebody. Get together with them. You need to be able to see their facial expressions. You need to be able to dodge, you know, the the things that they're throwing at you. You know, you need to be able to, to do that. No, I'm kidding. But you know what I'm saying? You need to be able to, to see what and how they're reacting. And they need to be able to see your facial expressions. They need to be able to see your heart. And over the phone, it's not going to happen. Through an email. Through somebody else. It's not a good way to do it. Paul came to Peter face to face. He confronted the situation. Not behind Peter's back. Not through somebody else. Not through the grapevine. But face to face. And that's how we should do it as well. And it's not easy. For some of us, it's easier than others. For, for some of us, it's too easy. You know, if confrontation is like something you enjoy and something that you really like doing, you know, that, that's probably not good either. But if you're really afraid of it and you refuse to do it, you've got to ask for boldness and courage to be able to say what needs to be said. It's interesting, in verse 13, as Paul is recounting this story, he says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Peter, with his hypocrisy, with his two-faced mentality, had influenced the rest of the Jewish Christians. They were all doing this. They were all being one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. And even Barnabas had fallen into this. Barnabas was like the guy that everybody liked. His real name is Joseph, but he began to be known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. was a character trait of Barnabas to be an encourager, to be a motivator. You remember that it was Barnabas that went and got Paul from Tarsus after Paul had been saved and then Paul had been learning from the Lord there in Arabia as we saw in chapter 1 and God had been preparing him. But then Paul went out and tried to minister and it didn't go that well and for a while Paul just kind of hung out at home but then when this church in Antioch formed and these Gentile believers started needing someone to minister to them Barnabas thought of Paul he thought what a perfect guy to minister to them and so he went and he found Paul. And he encouraged him to get into ministry. And at first, it was Barnabas and Paul. When you read the book of Acts, at the beginning of their ministry, it was Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was the main guy. He was the guy everybody knew. Who, who's Paul? It's Barnabas. But then you notice, and it's real subtle, but you notice, all of a sudden, it becomes Paul and Barnabas. You don't ever see Barnabas complain about it. He doesn't ever say, hey, how come I'm not the main guy anymore? How come I'm not the main attraction? How come nobody's looking at me? He didn't care. God raised up Paul in a powerful way and used him. And Barnabas was completely content to fade into the background. In fact, there came a point on the second missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas had a bit of a conflict. And they went their own separate ways. And what happens? The rest of the book of Acts is about who? It's about Paul. You don't ever hear about Barnabas again. It's an amazing guy. He just faded into the background. He said, you know what? I don't want to be in the way. I disagree with you, Paul. 
but I don't want to get in the way of what God's doing. That's an amazing example for us to follow. But here's Barnabas, this guy that we would look to and go, man, what a great guy. And he had even fallen into this trap. The same thing that Peter had fallen into. And here's the point. It is that we influence people by our actions. Peter influenced the whole church. It says the rest of the Jews and even Barnabas followed his example. Our actions, whether positive or negative, influence people. We need to be aware of that. Be careful. Parents, the things that you say, the things that you do, influence your children. Husbands, know that whether you feel like a leader or not, you are the leader of your home. And here's the thing about that. It has nothing to do with the text, but here's the thing about husbands and leadership. You're a leader whether you use your leadership or not. If you abdicate your leadership and give it to your wife, you have made a leadership decision. You have given her the leadership. See, it's yours and you've given it away. And if that's what you want to do, then you'll have a dysfunctional family. Because it's not created that way. It's not the way God set it up. And whether we like it or not, that's not the issue. God's our creator. He set it up a certain way. We don't get to just make it however we want. Life isn't Legos. You know, we want to make it however we want to make it. We want to mix and match and do our own thing. It doesn't work that way. God set it up that men were to be the leaders of the most important community on earth, which is the family. And whether or not we take that role is really up to us, guys. And if we give it away, then that's our leadership decision, and we will pay for it. But know this, husbands and wives, that your actions will influence others, whether positive or negative. And we see that very clearly here. And Paul didn't just rebuke Peter face to face. In verse 14, it says that he rebuked him before them all. Before them all. Public sin, which this was because he had influenced all of these people. Public sin needs to be addressed publicly. Peter had influenced the entire church. And so his sin needed to be brought before the whole church so that they could all repent. And there are certain times where things need to be brought before everybody so that the entire church understands that this is wrong and we're not going to tolerate this and we need to repent of this. And so that's why Peter was rebuked in public. So we've seen that the gospel was approved by the apostles. We've seen that it was attacked by the enemy. And we saw how Paul addressed this attack. First, what he did, verses 11 through 13, and then what he said, verses 14 through 18, which we've already read, what he said to Peter in a nutshell, in those verses, is why are you putting burdens and bondages and rules and regulations on these people that you don't even follow? Why are you doing that? You don't even follow these things. Peter, you received a vision from God in Acts chapter 10. I know you didn't forget that. You didn't forget that you were the one that actually opened up the gospel to the Gentiles. Yes, it was Paul that would take that and carry it forth, but it was actually Peter that opened the door. You remember in Acts 10, Peter was hungry. He was up on the roof praying. He had a vision. 
and the sheet was lowered down and there was all kinds of food. All the stuff that Peter had grown up being taught that you weren't allowed to eat. There's pork chops, all kinds of stuff that he had never eaten before. And, and God said, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, which is an oxymoron. You can't say not so, Lord. You can say not so, friend, or not so, you know, husband or wife, or not so, buddy, but you can't say not so, Lord. If He's our Lord, then we do what He says. And Peter said, not so, Lord. And then God said to Peter, do not call common or unclean what I've called clean. Go ahead. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth because that is a picture of your heart. And he said, look, I've prepared a man. His name's Cornelius. And you need to go to his house and you need to minister to him because he has a lot of questions. And so Peter went to his house. He taught him the word. The man got saved along with his whole household. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the gospel was then opened to the Gentiles. And it was Peter that was used to make that happen. But here's Peter now being a hypocrite. Peter didn't forget the truth. Okay, you don't forget stuff like that. You don't forget that kind of a vision. You don't forget that kind of an experience. You know, having two guys show up at the gate of the house where you just received a vision who said, look, follow us to Cornelius' house and God has just told you that's where you're going and you follow them to his house and then you lead them to Christ and they're filled with the Spirit. You don't forget that kind of stuff. It wasn't like Peter's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. No. Peter was being a hypocrite. Why? Because of his fear. It says it very clearly. His fear of the Jews. And it is a human tendency of ours to be one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group. We're very savvy at that. We know how to tow the company line. We know what to say around certain people. And you can actually become like a master of it. You know, Andrea was just talking to our neighbor yesterday, who we know for a fact isn't a believer. She's a nice lady. She doesn't know the Lord. But whenever we talk to her, she all of a sudden gets real spiritual. She starts talking about the Bible and faith and Jesus. And, you know, it's like I've got a sneaking suspicion that these kinds of things don't come out of your mouth when you're out appraising houses. You know, I just don't think that that's you. But all of a sudden, you, you know, you're a saint here. And we are very good at that. We're very good at knowing what we need to say around certain people. And if that's you, knock it off. Be who you are. Say what needs to be said. Don't be a politician. Don't try to, you know, appeal to everybody by being a coward. Say what you believe. Live the way you live around Everyone. And the reason that Peter had fallen into this trap is because of his fear and because he got his eyes off the truth. He didn't forget the truth. He got his eyes off of the truth. And that's what can very easily happen to us as we take our eyes off of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says... Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You guys, if you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will become all sorts of things you don't want to become. Hypocrisy might just be one thing on a list of a lot of stuff that isn't real pleasing to God. We can't take our eyes off of Jesus. Peter had taken his eyes off of Jesus. He had taking his eyes off of the truth. Just like Peter did when he was following Jesus at a distance leading up to the cross. You remember the story. 
stay here and pray. No, I think I'll sleep. Then the men come to arrest Jesus. Peter awakens from his slumber. No, you're not going to arrest Jesus. I'm going to take this into my own hands. And he slices off the servant of the high priest's ear. Jesus heals the man's ear. And then it says that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. So Jesus is arrested in his greatest time of need. And what is Peter doing? He's following at a distance. He's creeping from tree to tree. He's using binoculars. You know, he doesn't want to get his eyes off of Jesus, but he also doesn't want to be beaten and crucified like he knows Jesus is about to be. And then he warms himself at the enemy's fire. And then the man that was so brave and chopped off the servant's ear now can't even confess Jesus in front of a few people around the fire. And how did it all start? It all started because he got his eyes off of Jesus. Peter had a tendency to do that, and so do we. And I'll tell you the way that we keep our eyes on Jesus, you guys. It's by staying in the Word. If you want to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, we need to stay in the Word. If we get out of the Word, if we aren't in the Word devotionally, personally, you guys, we will forget how much we need Jesus. We will take our eyes off of Him, and the next thing we know, we'll be doing things that are shameful. We'll be playing a hypocrite like Peter did here. Or whatever your proclivities are. Well, third point I want to look at quickly as we conclude is found in verses 19 through 21, and that is that the gospel was applied by Paul personally. So it was approved by the apostles. They put their stamp of approval on it. It was attacked by the enemy, which you know when anything's attacked by the enemy that there's a reason for that. It's because he's feeling threatened. And it's truth. And now we see Paul making it very clear that the gospel was also applied by him personally. This wasn't pie in the sky. This wasn't a good concept. This was something that Paul had made personal. It had changed his life. And there's a powerful element to the truth of the gospel when we can show people with our life what the gospel does. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, the gospel message changed my life, which validates its truth. Verse 19, For for I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, these are the kind of verses that you can pretty much just read and let them speak for themselves. This is very clear, Paul's saying here. He's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I made this very personal. You guys, we must die to ourselves. That is at the very heart of the gospel message. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's repentance. We don't hear a lot about repentance today. It's not a, a popular word. But it's something that is very important. That we allow the Lord to change our life. And he says, I was crucified with Christ. I died to myself. And we must die to ourselves in order for Christ's presence in us. That is, as he says, Christ lives in me. If we want Christ's life to be evident to other people, if we want Jesus 
to demonstrate His presence. If we want Jesus to flow forth from us and touch other people, if we want people to look at our lives and say, my goodness, what happened in their life? What is different about them? What do they have that I don't have? If we want that, we have to die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us. So that Christ can be demonstrated in us. And it's a daily thing. It's a daily reckoning of your old man to be dead. It's a daily understanding that you were crucified with Christ. Just as Jesus was crucified, so too were we. And we have to place ourselves on that cross and say, I'm dead to the old man. I don't have to live for that sin nature anymore. I don't have to do those things any longer. And so the question is, what needs to die? What aspect of our flesh needs to die? What area of our life do we need to crucify with Christ today? What aspect of your flesh do you need to identify with the cross? What part of your life needs to be crucified with Christ so that He can live powerfully in you? It's a question I want to leave us with this morning, guys. What, what part of our life needs to die? Is, is there pride? Is there a self-sufficiency? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Is there an unsubmissive spirit? Is there divisiveness? Is there envy? Is there lust? What part of your life needs to die this morning so that Christ can live powerfully in you and in me? What area of our life is getting in the way of people seeing Jesus in us. Why don't we stand, you guys? And why don't we just pray through that as we close in song. And just ask God to minister to your heart, to do that work in you and through you, to crucify that area of your life that, that needs to die. And, and you know what that is, and, and, and you can confess that. And the Bible says if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why don't we do that? And, and you guys, if you need prayer, we'll be available to pray uh, for you. Uh, Kelly, myself, and others will be up here to, to pray with you if you'd like to to pray through anything that we talked about this morning or or maybe you've never given your life to Christ and you want to do that. Whatever it is, maybe you need physical healing. Maybe you're going through financial troubles. I don't know. Maybe you want to confess your sin to the Lord. 